Welcome, you happy warriors, and thank you for tuning in to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are valued, and you are welcome, and I appreciate those of you who've been helping to promote the show and tell other people about this podcast. You're doing a great job because the number of downloads every week continues to climb dramatically, which fills me with considerable gratification and also uh, allows the show to become an effective part of my entire business outlook. So thanks very much indeed, and we will move on with the show. But uh, first of all, I have to tell you that uh, some Ghanaian friends of mine were really worried about things they've been reading about California. Um, They hear that California has become a really third world place. Um, They read about filth in the streets of Seattle and San Francisco. They read about water shortages. They read about electricity shortages in Southern California. People not allowed to water their lawns and people are not allowed to use as much water as they want. And their toilets have to, I mean, this shocked my Ghanaian friends because when I was in Ghana, uh, I was able to have wonderful showers. The water came gushing out. And when you flushed the toilet, it was a flush that flushed. And um, and so, understandably, they are really worried about what's happening to the good people in California. A limited water, obviously electricity a problem, filth a problem. And so uh, they are starting a charity. They want to raise money to help drill wells in California. They're going to send over a, a whole bunch of young Ghanaians who want to do some mission work, and they're going to come to California and help to drill wells in communities that are short of water. Uh, and so I just want you to know about this because I am supporting them, and uh, I will in due course provide further information for those of you uh, who would like to help the folks in California, um, it's you know it's it's a third it's a third world country really. I mean I know it's part of the United States, but but California really has become a third world place. And what's so wonderful is that developing countries like Ghana are filled with caring and compassionate people. Do you know that Ghana is seventy percent Christian? It is so amazing, and that has an enormous amount to do with the cultural and political and economic success um, of that country. As as you know, I was absolutely astounded, and I formed some very warm friendships and relationships with folks in Ghana, and I'm looking forward to going back soon. But um, one of the, uh, or some of these people, are, they really care. They really, they, it worries them. And uh, and so, as I say, they're going to be sending young people to California to drill wells, and provide limitless water for communities in California that are low on water. They're going to help clean up the streets in uh, San Francisco and in Seattle uh, because they remember what it's like to live in a third world country. Well, Ghana is no longer a third world country, I'll tell you that. It's very much a developing country. And uh, you walk down the streets of Accra, and uh, let me tell you something, there are no there's no, let me just say, no filth in the streets, as when you walk down the streets today of downtown Seattle or downtown San Francisco. Uh, no um, hypodermic needles, no dirt. There are no people lying in doorways. None of that. And these good people in Ghana, they just feel bad. They're filled with compassion 
for people suffering in California, and uh, they are uh, uh, going to send people out to help clean up and to help drill wells to provide water for thirsty Californians, and um, and it's it's a beautiful beautiful charity. I'm I'm supporting them, and um, and you can you can write to me. You let me know if you'd like to support. I'm not going to. Uh, uh, you know pressure anybody obviously but you if you're interested in helping those folks in california and uh, letting the hard-working people of ghana make a difference and and really bring hope to californians uh we we're happy to facilitate that you can just go to the website and write to me let me know you're interested in being part of this effort to save the people of california and to try and bring progress and development so that california can once again resume uh, its place in a modern world where hygiene and uh, and politeness and economic vitality and safety uh, can all be taken for granted. Uh, I think I've already told you that uh, you can walk in Accra at night and you don't have to worry. Crime is just not a problem. Try and walk across... Uh, downtown Baltimore late at night see how far you get right it's um now I think I'm going to talk to them to see if they can help Baltimore as well but right now they're focused on helping the suffering people in California now um I wasn't in California this past week but I was in Illinois I was in Chicago and I was in Champaign and one of the things I was doing was um speaking for the proven conference. Now, I've, I've mentioned this in, in previous podcasts. Anyway, I did that on Wednesday, which was September the 11th, 2019. <clears throat> and, um, <clears throat> pardon me. And um, what, uh, what I wanted to tell you about was that this was a conference put on by a remarkable business leader called Jim Cockrum, C-O-C-K-R-U-M. And uh, he and I have been friends for a long time, and uh, I've uh, I've been on his podcast. And you can, by the way, find out more about Jim at his website, silentjim.com. Okay, now, why am I telling you this? Because you've heard me from time to time saying that uh, many people, it's obviously, you know, there's nothing that's for everybody, but many people ought to be seriously looking into second streams of income. So in other words, if you have a very undemanding job and um, you're only working, I don't know, 40 hours a week or some ridiculously low number like that, and uh, and you discover you've got plenty time to watch movies and cat videos on YouTube, uh, it's really time to start a business, developing another stream of income. And uh, I have uh, previously recommended silentjim.com. I recommended Jim Cockrum as a good place to start. Uh, You know, okay, why am I saying this? Because this conference, um, there were about uh, between six and 700 people there and just a wonderful crowd. I loved uh, I loved the time in between my sessions and speeches where I had a chance to mix and mingle with people and sign copies of my books and talk to people. So there are people there from Toronto and Vancouver, from Mexico City. There are people all literally from different countries. People came to be at this event in Champaign, Illinois this past week. 
and for many of them, and I, you know, I asked everybody, you know, what's what 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 business are, and many people, you know, one one guy said, um, you know, I've been a postal clerk, but uh, I'm now I'm looking to build a second stream. I came here to to learn how to do it, and I said, is that working out for you? He said, yeah, it's it really is. Somebody else. Um, came from where was this guy from I'm, I'm sorry I can't quite remember where he's from but I can see in my mind's eye I see him standing in front of me and he was saying also I mean he said I just knew that I needed to stop what I was doing and uh, start a business I didn't have the faintest idea of how to do it I knew I wanted it to be something to do with the internet obviously and um, and I came and he said, you know, I said to him, how's that working out? He said, unbelievable. First of all, I'm getting hard information on how to do it. Secondly, I'm talking to people who've done it. So I feel encouraged and I, I know it's something I can do. He said, I, I leave on Friday a completely different person than when I came on Tuesday. And I really do believe that. Anyway, I tell you all this because uh, I enjoyed it very much. I found that uh, the uh, the people there were an absolute pleasure to mix with. And, you know, look, they're, they're business people. And when you get right down to it, you've got to remember that uh, the, the four things that produce happiness in God's children, the, the four things that make you and me happy are family, finance, faith, and friendships. So you, you need community. You need something bigger than yourself you need to get your finances in shape so they don't keep you awake at night and you need family relationships and connections now um the uh, the the area of finance is one that interestingly enough combines with community and friendship and i saw that happening right there so when you build a an online community for your business uh, you're doing much more than just creating a revenue stream. You are serving God's other children, and you are building a community of which you are a part. I saw all of this happen. And if I'm sounding enthusiastic, um, I am. You know, there, there there's a lot of things I, I do. I'm very, very fortunate that I get to choose the events I speak at. I get to choose the audiences and the organizations that I make a part of my life, and I'm blessed, and I appreciate that. I, I never take that for granted. And so, uh, you know, from time to time, you, you do hear me coming back with enormous enthusiasm. I did that when I came back from my speeches in Ghana, and, uh, and now I came back from two presentations I did in Champaign, uh, Illinois for silentgym.com and his proven conference. So anyway, that was terrific. And, uh, and you should definitely know this. If you're somebody who has an awareness that a second uh, stream of income is something that's important for you, you just don't know how to do it. This definitely is uh, one of the places you should explore. Um, I should also mention that the resource that I want you all to be aware of um, is uh, Buried Treasure. This is a resource on our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, it's called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, and it comes together with a beautiful color alphabet book, nominally for children. But uh, I keep hearing, <laughs> I keep hearing from parents who bought this book for their kids, and and are, are just loving it because it's giving them insight into the Lord's language. So um, over you to go to rabbidaniellappin.com and make sure that you take a look at. Uh, buried treasure life lessons from the lord's language 
and the alphabet book, which is beautifully got up, by the way, quite lovely. Now, uh, what I'm going to do now is uh, take you over to um, the conference, and we're on Wednesday, September the 11th, 2019, and uh, I would like to share with you uh, exactly what I presented to this group of people in uh, at the Proven Conference with Jim Cochram in Champaign. And uh, again, I, I haven't received, uh, when I, I do this from time to time where I share a public presentation with you here on the podcast, and I've received far, far more um, responses as I've surveyed you. I have far more people who've said, yes, um, you know, it's, it's, we enjoy it. Uh, one person just recently wrote that we can tell a complete, there's a complete difference in your voice and in your presentation because we can almost hear you bouncing around the stage as uh, as you're talking. Uh, yeah, look, when, you, when, when there's feedback from real live human beings, it makes a difference. And this podcast would be absolutely grueling to do if I didn't know how many of you are downloading it. That is what makes it possible, and that's what fills me with energy and enthusiasm for it. But nonetheless, even that cannot match a live audience. And so uh, that is what you're going to hear now. I hope you enjoy it. And at the end, uh, I'll be back to say farewell. All right, come on in, guys. I'm excited to get this next session started. We've given this gentleman the time that he deserves. He actually, I could listen to this guy talk all day. We've given him 90 minutes, but he's the kind of guy that can just capture your imagination and your attention. I've already told you, but now he's here so he can hear me saying it backstage. This is my favorite living author, guys. He has spoken into my life more than any other living author. I've got a handful of other favorite authors, but all of them are gone now. <laughs> so my favorite living author is Mr. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, who I'll bring out in just a moment. Uh, but let me just share a, a couple of ways that he's directly impacted and influenced our family. In the areas of faith, family, friendship, and finances, there are some timeless proven messages hidden in God's word that any of us can benefit from. And again, regardless of your worldview, you can benefit from these timeless lessons. Some things are always changing. Medicine, science, technology, the world we play in, the internet, seems like it's always changing. But to the degree that you understand those things that never change regarding family, faith, finances, and friendships, you lay an incredible foundation to adapt constantly to what life throws at you. And this guy has given me a love of the Word of God, unlike any... And, you know, I call him my second favorite rabbi, too. My favorite rabbi died for me on a cross. You know, that's what we as Christians believe. My second favorite rabbi is a gentleman we're about to meet in just a moment. And as you guys make your way back in, I'm super excited to introduce to you our keynote speaker for the Proven Conference 2019, my good friend, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Please join us. Oh, this is, this is great. I think it's uh, probably impossible to start our time together here today on the 11th of September, 2019, without thinking back to another 9-11, 
to another day, the 11th of September, many years ago, that changed the history of the world. And that has a lot to do with the entire concept of income and revenue that we're discussing. I'm talking, of course, about the 11th of September, 1683. <laughs> oh, you were thinking of something? Oh, okay. Um, 11th of September, 1683, began the retreat of the Muslim world, which continued like a dormant volcano from the 11th of September, 1683, until the 11th of September, 2001, when it returned. And I want to give you a little bit of a background as to what was going on. And I'll tell you why. My friends, we're living in a time, literally the very first time in not only American history, but the history of Western civilization, in which people who consider themselves to be educated indeed influential, who consider themselves to be sophisticated and knowledgeable, literally do not know whether the word Leviticus is an aftershave lotion for men or a book. <laughs> In other words, we are living through a time of secular ascendancy. And this began in the early 1960s in the United States of America. Prior to that time, the role of the soul was understood. The influence that man's understanding of what God expects of him, the idea that that relationship could shape who we are and what we are, was something that everybody knew. But today, it's a little bit different. We're living in an unusual period of secular ascendancy. Uh, one of the greatest business advisors in modern American history was a Jewish guy called Peter Drucker. By the way, <coughs> Jews have always been comfortable advertising how they can help God's other children. And that's one of the reasons that Jewish last names, until relatively recently, always were involved or connected with the occupation, with what the person did. And so, you, you know, you had goldsmith and, and, uh, and, um, uh, and silversmith silver or Goldberg, or all of these names always identified what the person did. This was like walking around with a giant big business card glued to your forehead. And that's not necessarily something I'm recommending, but neither do I recommend the opposite of that, which is what people do today, which is they are very shy. They are very reticent about it. And yet it lies at the heart of our curiosity about our fellow human beings almost the very first question we ask somebody we find ourselves sitting next to on an airplane for a few hours, almost invariably we say, you know, so what do you do? Or what field are you in? 
That's a biblical reference, by the way. The idea that a field is how you make your living, therefore what field do you labor in is exactly something that has moved from Hebrew, from the scripture, and into the various languages of the modern world. A number of languages utilize this idea of what field you're in. And we ask people that. <clears throat> now, I have a, um, a slightly different approach when I find myself sitting next to somebody get chatting. I always say, so how do you serve your fellow human beings? And there's always a little bit of a double take there, and, and the person wrinkles his or her forehead, not quite sure what I'm saying. Sometimes I need to elaborate, and I have to explain a little bit exactly what I'm talking about, but eventually they get it, and then invariably they say, now, why did you ask me like that? Oh, I am so pleased you asked me that question. Because... When you work for a living, you're nothing but a camel or a cow or a cat or a kangaroo. They all work for their livings. But I don't. I work for you. I work for God's other children. The living is an automatic consequence of doing things right. But I don't do it to make money. That would be a somewhat miserable occupation. I do it for the thrill of connecting with another one of God's children and being of service to them. And that is why no work is menial. Any way that I can serve another one of God's children is exciting, it's fulfilling. And one of the ways I know that I have served effectively is by the flow of what we think of as certificates of good performance little green strips of paper. All they do is prove that we in fact have served at least one of God's other children. That's, that's how it works. And so uh, we always are at, at great lengths to let people know how we can serve them. You know, we, don't, we don't try and hide that. Some people uh, will say, well, I'm not defined by my occupation. I am a human being with interests and all kinds of passions. You probably want to know about those. No, I don't. I really just want to know how you serve other human beings. Because that is central to your identity. We're not a cat or a camel or a cow or a kangaroo. If we were well then, yes, I suppose I'm not really that interested in how you gather or hunt for your food. But you're not. You're serving God's other children. That changes everything. It means that the way I go to work on Monday morning is with a bounce in my step and a smile on my face because it's another opportunity to engage in one of the most exciting occupations that God has given us, the ability to please him by serving his other children. It's, it's incredible. So uh, Peter Drucker, uh, the word Drucker in German means a printer. And uh, Peter, the late Peter Drucker's family were obviously printers for about 200 years in Germany before uh, the Nazis forced his family to emigrate out of Germany and they made their way to the United States. Uh, Peter is, was actually responsible for a, a large part of the structure of what we know of as General Motors. 
and in the great years of General Motors where Peter Drucker worked with Al Sloan and built this incredible organization out of what until then had been a hodgepodge of all kinds of little manufacturers and little dealers and little uh, machine shops scattered around Detroit and Peter Drucker and Al Sloan built General Motors. Now, Peter Drucker uh, had no problem whatsoever in spite of the fact that he taught at Harvard. He had no trouble writing in several articles in the Harvard Business Review that you cannot possibly succeed in business if you are not aware of the spiritual qualities of the people with whom you work. If the spiritual aspect plays no role in your thinking, you will never be able to succeed. That's what Peter Drucker wrote in 1957. Obviously today, nobody at Harvard speaks like that. But that's probably one reason why today Harvard is no longer a place of learning. It's simply a, pay, a place of endorsement. You go there to get a stamp. That's all. You get a, a Harvard stamp on your forehead and off you go. But the idea that it is a place of profound learning is simply no longer the case. When Harvard and Yale were founded originally in exactly the same way as when Oxford and Cambridge were founded much earlier or when the University of Paris was founded, when these places were founded, they were there to teach people, their students, how the world really worked. And you can't possibly understand how the world really works if you don't have some understanding of the spiritual nature of reality. I'm not going to tell you who she is. Wild horses could not drag her name from me. You certainly can't. But there's a certain woman I know very well indeed who will drive across town because her little app told her that gasoline is four cents a gallon less there. <laughs> not telling you who she is. She would never forgive me. Now you would think that I could explain to her, look, if we estimate your time at, at, at a really low figure, and we take into account the drive across town in the traffic, and how much gas that uses, this whole exercise from an economic standpoint simply doesn't make a lot of sense. How successful am I in this little enterprise? Not at all, so I don't even try anymore. When she says, uh, I want to go and fill up the gas, I know this is a 45-minute excursion. <laughs> I understand. That's because we are not camels or cats or cows or kangaroos. We are human beings touched by the finger of God. And that means we have a spiritual side to us. And that means that I have successfully surrounded my wife with a cocoon of financial security <laughs> that makes her not worry in terms of calculating exactly how much. That's not what she's thinking of. She is going back to her New York background where she grew up, and she sees an opportunity to save a few dollars. Maybe on a fill-up. 
That is spiritual. That's not material. Do you follow that? From a physical or material point of view, you calculate and you don't buy something that ends up to be a net loss. But we have spiritual needs as well as physical needs. And that changes everything. And if we understand that, then we are way ahead. Right? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, accepting that in the Lord's language in Hebrew, in which, the, in which David originally wrote the book of Psalms, interestingly enough, the Hebrew has the same word for the seeing of God and the fear of God. Well, that makes sense if you think about it because we all behave a little differently, do we not, when we are being watched. And one of the reasons that when we're in the traffic in our car with the, with the windows rolled up and the air conditioning cranking out and a really good business podcast playing, uh, we don't necessarily, we're unaware of the people around us. It's almost as if we're alone. And we do things that we would never do walking down the sidewalk of a busy city. But when we're alone, we do different. When you've, it's all very well to talk about we fear God, but if you actually see him, believe me, you'll fear him more. And if you can wrap yourself around this idea <laughs> I see him in everything that happens day by day. He's right there. Well, obviously, that's going to cause me to fear him a little more effectively. And so, yes, the beginning of all wisdom is the seeing of God. The seeing that we are human beings quite different from cats and cows and camels and kangaroos. We are human beings touched by his finger, and that means we operate differently. And that's what Peter Drucker said in the Harvard Business Review, 1957, that if you're unaware of the spiritual nature of human beings, you cannot truly succeed. And so everything today gets interpreted at least in American academia, everything gets interpreted in a materialistic fashion. I could say a Marxist materialistic fashion, but I'm not interested in the politics of it at the moment. I'm only interested in the fact that there are two separate visions of the world. One is a materialistic vision, and the other is an authentic spiritual vision. One of them struggles to explain reality. The other one explains it perfectly. There is a reason that economics is called the dismal science. Be precisely because of what I just gave you as an example of, my, of, of this unnamed lady. <laughs> She's behaving in a way that economically speaking was unpredictable but spiritually speaking, was perfectly predictable. That's what's going on there. And so economics is something that today is taught in the science department of universities. But it wasn't always like that. It used to be taught in the theology department of universities. Because we know full well 
that if you take two identical human beings and give them the same education and you give them the same background, excepting they have two totally different set of spiritual values, after a career of a certain number of years, one of those men will have a substantial net worth and the other one will be in debt. But from an economics point of view, they're the same. It's two human beings. They, uh, they look the same. They had the same background, the same education, excepting one had a religious set of values, one had a secular set of values. They have the same kind of job. They make the same income. They have the same everything. And how do you explain the fact that after 25 years, one of them has a large net worth and the other one is in debt? Are those physical characteristics or spiritual characteristics? What causes the financial difference in their status? Look, it's more fun to spend money than to invest it. That's all there is to it. And so, do people have the character strength to withstand the seductive urge to spend and to undergo the discipline unfulfilling as it is of investing, or do we spend? And that makes the difference. And that's a spiritual characteristic. It's a question of character strength. It's not a, it's not a material thing. There is no university in the land. Well, I shouldn't say no. There are a few Bible universities. But ordinarily, the, uh, the state-run institutions are, are not able to explain this. They literally do not know how to explain that people with identical earning histories end up with totally different financial statuses. Now, I want to take a brief little departure from my prepared remarks, if I might. I have noticed that many of you are engaging in a practice which I deplore. I'm seeing you. And I'm seeing a lot of you doing this thing. Now, I'm not saying it has no use at other times. And I'm not even going to command you because I have no power to do that. But I'm going to strongly advise you to stop doing this thing. Do you know what it is? What? How do you know? How did you know that? Yes, it is note-taking. Stop it. <laughs> Let me explain to you. I mean, apart from the fact that I'd rather see your eyes than to see the top of your heads. <laughs> apart from that, what's wrong with it? Let me tell you, if you haven't, I mean, you've probably got the answer already. The answer is that we human beings are truly incapable of effectively doing two things at the same time. And so it is beyond a shadow of a doubt that your focus is either on listening to me or it is on the act of converting abstract ideas into shapes on a piece of paper. Now, I'm a big fan of writing. We'll talk about that still. But not now. Because just think about it. If it was so important for you to have a paper record of what is going on here today, don't you think I could have written better notes than you? 
I kind of know this material, you know. And if I could, why would I be so mean as not to bring a copy of notes for everyone here? I could have done that. As a matter of fact, Jim, who is a dear, dear friend whom I respect enormously and who I trust as having my interests at heart as he has his own, and I have his interests at heart as I have my own, he would have definitely saved me the trouble of getting on a plane yesterday. He would have said, why don't you just send along a package of all your notes and I'll hand them out. Better yet, he would have said, why don't you just email me the, the material of your notes, I'll print them here, I'll give them to everybody, we're good. Why didn't he do that? Ladies and gentlemen, when two human beings interact, and now here it's a lot more than two, but that's fine, because you can hear and you can tell that I'm speaking to you and to you and to you and to you, each and every one of you, unless I can't see your faces because they are down on your notepads. <laughs> then it's a little hard for me to relate to you. But otherwise, I'm not, I'm not standing here reading I'm looking at each and every one of you because the relationship is what changes things here. And because of this interaction, you will see that what we're dealing with, and that's a large part of everything I'm discussing, is not about information to get into your heads. Because if it's information to get into your heads, then I would have mailed you notes but it's about a change in your hearts. That's what Peter Drucker wrote in 1957 in the Harvard Business Review. If you think that human beings are nothing but a pair of hands and a head, and they are therefore economic units that can be plugged into an economy, then you're never gonna succeed because you're missing the most important point about a human being. And that is, we're not even bodies that happen to be residing, that happen to have a soul in them. We are actually souls that happen to have a body wrapped around them. And the proof of that is that overwhelmingly the things that we do are driven by our souls, not by our brains, not by our hands, not by our, not by our bodies. The things we do overwhelmingly, like that lady I was telling you about, whose name will remain unknown. <laughs> it's not her body that is causing her to drive across town because her body is material and her, the materialistic side of her life would be helped by her buying a little more expensive gas right near home. It's a soul thing, it's a spiritual thing. There's a spiritual part of her that just likes, that feels good about purchasing things at a good price. Wholesale, if possible. <laughs> Listen, the, the less money you spend, the better it is, obviously. And so, uh, I, I cannot command you, but I certainly recommend that you put away your notepads, relax. You're going to enjoy it more. 
I'm going to enjoy it more, and most importantly, I can guarantee you that you will get more out of our time together than you would have if you had notes. So really just focus on what we're talking about and its, and its impact on you. And so here we are then looking at uh, a period of history that we're living through that is excessively secular and materialistic. Not surprisingly, things are not going that well. Any of you who listen to my podcast know that I have a disparaging word I use for government education. I don't call them schools. I call them government indoctrination camps or gigs. And that's not out of a lack of respect for many of the hardworking teachers who do their very best. It is because it is a doomed enterprise In the same way that certain people are unemployable in America today, literally unemployable. It's not that they lack coding skills. It's not that they lack higher education. People are unemployable. And by the way, I say here, but it's, it's equally true in the United Kingdom, where I've had a little bit of experience. Uh, people are unemployable because they lack certain spiritual qualities. You know what they are? Regarding the opportunity to serve as a privilege. If you are somebody who is resentful in life in general, and you're particularly resentful towards your boss or your customers, you're unemployable. What, what possible good can you do me? Why would I hire you? Why? To have you glowering at me every day? Life's too short. The reason that many people are unemployable is spiritual, not physical. It's not that they lack skills. It's not that they lack an education. All of that can be fixed, but only if the underpinning is there. Showing up for work on time every day, spiritual or material, it's a spiritual quality. Because materially, your body is shrieking at you to hit that obscene invention of the 20th century called a snooze bar. <laughs> hit it and take another 10 minutes. That is what your body is calling for. Your soul would say, Get up now quickly so as I have enough time to oil my machine before my shift starts at the factory. I, I could go late and oil my machine during my shift, but if I did that, I would be robbing my employer of what he is buying from me. Spiritual, this is all spiritual. And it's equally true in education. When you put a group of students in front of a teacher in a classroom, if there is not a spiritual substance there, if there's no concept of respect for somebody who's older than you and knows more than you, that's a huge thing. But if that spiritual quality isn't there, the best teacher in the world, with all the money spent and all the computers, can accomplish absolutely nothing. 
And so if you look at the horrendous state of education in America, both in uh, K through 12 and also in America's university system today, where nothing of value is being taught. As a matter of fact, I think a very good argument can be made that if you go to a four-year college, other than in certain technical topics I'll mention, but in general, if you go to the four-year college, you will emerge less ready for life than when you went in. You will be diminished as a human being because your soul will have been damaged. Now, obviously, if you're taking a degree in science you know, technology or engineering or mathematics or computers, that's a different story because if you're diligent about that, you will come out at least able to get a job and, and uh, earn a living. Why? Because those are difficult topics. But if you take out student debt to take a degree in middle period Byzantine frescoes, <laughs> which a lot of people do, and then they write to me and I get these letters saying, what are we gonna do about all my student debt? I don't know, not my problem, it's yours. Best thing I can suggest is pay it off and stop doing stupid things. Because in today's world, you're not even allowed to acknowledge that we ourselves are collaborators, at least, in our own misfortune. Because that's called, oh, blaming the victim. You're never allowed to blame the victim, right? So that means that anything that happens to people is always the result of somebody else or something else. No. The fact is that 98.75% of everybody's financial problems today are caused by bad mistakes you made yesterday. If you can't acknowledge that, we're going nowhere. But in today's culture, you can't. Why? Because the culture is shifting from a spiritual approach to a material and physical approach. And you are looking at the consequences of that in society today. But that doesn't mean that you have to be susceptible to that. It doesn't mean that you cannot escape from that and build for yourself an ark of refuge, an ark of financial and family refuge. You certainly can. But you have to understand the role and the significance of our spiritual connection with God. That's where we came from. Because as long as you are persuaded that we are nothing but the result of a lengthy, materialistic, unaided process that over billions of years converted primitive protoplasm into plumbers and proctologists, then you're absolutely gonna get nowhere because you're assuming that your customers and your employees and your vendors are all materialistic. There's literally nothing but talking baboons. It's not true. Just like that lady whose name I'm not telling you, they too make irrational decisions 
from a materialistic point of view. But if you understand that they are spiritual creatures, even if they themselves don't understand that, you will have a much better sense of what is driving them, what is motivating them. And it's not always their own best financial interests. Because we all act against our own best financial interests when there is something higher being served. But if you are a materialist, there is nothing higher. And so you can't possibly understand what's really going on. And that's why it is that much of the way history is taught today is taught in a completely secular fashion. A large part of the mistaken politics of this country and of other countries stems from the fact that they are determined to find a matrix of explanation that leaves God out of the picture. Now I ask you, I'm a reasonable person. I will listen. Anybody who can explain to me how to understand the Middle East without mentioning or thinking of God, I'd be eager to hear that. And then you'd be able to explain to me why five million Jews who could comfortably immigrate to New Jersey are living in a barren piece of desert that they're trying to make bloom on the shores of the Mediterranean. Why? Their materialistic outcome is far better in New Jersey. So why won't they move? Or here's another question. They are surrounded by 100 million Arabs in the contiguous countries of uh, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. 100 million Arabs. Well, I got a great idea. Why don't we do what successive American presidents have attempted to do? Let's go to all these 100 million Arabs and say, hey, you guys, here is a deal. We can make sure that you receive so much money in aid from a world tired of Middle East conflict that we could literally put a half a million dollars in the hands of every single one of you. What's more, we could provide you with access to the world's markets. We could bring investors who would build factories here because as it is on your own, you haven't even figured out how to build bicycles, let alone chips. We'll bring all of that, and here's the only thing you gotta do. There's a tiny sliver of land, which is like less than a percent of all the land you've got. Just leave that alone and make peace with those people there called Hebrews. What's their answer? No deal. Well, that's not materialistically sensible. Who said this has anything to do with materialism? Their God tells them one thing, Israel's God tells them something else, and those two things are in conflict. Have you ever wondered why America's State Department makes such a mess of things? Because they are determined to find a materialistic, God-free explanation for the world. That's what they're trying to do, and it simply is not doable. Today's State Department is staffed by the first generation of Americans who have never, ever met a human being willing to die for his God. They've never met such a thing. And that's why they have so much trouble speaking about 
Islamic fundamentalists because that suggests that religion and God actually play a role in the world. I don't know if anybody uh, was, how many of you are aware of today's New York Times headquarters, uh, excuse me, headlines? It was an amazing thing. 18 years ago today, airplanes took aim at America and brought down the Twin Towers. Airplanes took aim. Honest, that's the New York Times headline. I think we need really good airplane control. We, we need a registration. <laughs> why, why does the New York Times say that? Because they cannot bring themselves to express something which makes no sense unless you acknowledge the role of religion and people's spiritual beliefs. You want to say people took aim and brought down the twin... <laughs> That's weird. What sort of people would do that? Well, people who really believe in Islam would do that, but they don't want to say that because their vision is of a benign, peaceful world where all of these God-centered ideas have been banished to the past where they belong and the rest of us can live modern, enlightened lives. It's just except it doesn't really work that way. There is always today an attempt to explain everything in materialistic or evolutionary terms. And so, let me go back, if I might. Let's go back to 1683. Now, this is really interesting because, once again, the New York Times, or the entire body of secularized America, absolute, by the way, I, I just want you to know, I say these things to secular audiences as well. And I don't even know how many of you are Bible believers or open to the Bible or how many of you are hostile to it. I don't know and I don't care. It doesn't matter because we're talking about facts. Please notice I haven't said a single thing that you can refute. I might have said things you don't like. I might have said things you don't agree with. But I haven't said anything you can refute. And so I'll say this anywhere at all. It is impossible to understand the events I am describing if you deliberately and stubbornly insist on finding a materialistic explanation. If you are absolutely convinced that people are nothing but the result of a lengthy, unaided process of materialistic evolution, then it is impossible to understand the events of 9-11-2001, and it's equally impossible to understand the events of 9-11-1683. And let me just paint a picture for you of what exactly was going on there, because it's really rather fascinating. What happened was that um, Muhammad um, launched a religion which was very big on the sword. Um, so much so that um, to this very day, and it's right about now, by the way, Shiite Muslims celebrate a holiday called Ashara. And what they do on that, and you, you can see pictures of it in, in magazines and on the web, what they do is they cut their heads with swords and the blood streams down their faces and they have a religious celebration. I've got to tell you, I mean, for what it's worth, 
a, a Jewish biblical festival doesn't look anything like that. <laughs> and, um, and they do it to kids as well. You'll see a man holding uh, his little son, and he's got a knife, and he's carving... Uh, I mean, not dangerously, it's, you know, the kid doesn't die or anything, but he is cutting the scalp to make blood run down the kid's face. Okay, now, this is a reality. It's something that their God tells them to do. And I would be a fool to not take that seriously, that that's very real. And so, the spirit of the sword worked rather effectively with Muhammad, and he spread this religion very rapidly. So much so that by the year 700, they had already conquered most of North Africa, and down even as far as the Sahara Desert. And so to this day, most of the North African countries, whether it's Egypt or or um, uh, Libya, or Morocco. These are, to this day, Islamic countries. That was what Muhammad and his armies managed to do until by the year 711, they jumped across the Straits of Gibraltar, and they began taking over the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. And guess what they did to every single cathedral or church that stood in, because uh, strongly Catholic countries, Portugal and, and Spain, what do you think they did to every church? They didn't destroy them, they just took away all the Christian symbolism and replaced it with Islamic symbolism. They killed the priests and replaced them with, but that's, that's what they did. Until uh, over the next 20 years or so, they had actually conquered all of the Iberian Peninsula remarkably. And then there's a line of mountains that separates Spain from France. Do you know what it's called? The Pyrenees. And they were now ready to cross the Pyrenees and take over France. And at that point, a Christian knight or leader called Charles Martel summoned an army. And basically, the Christians and the Muslims went to war. The Muslims wanted to take over the rest of Europe coming from the West. They wanted to go from Spain into France, and then they were going to take over Germany, move up to Sweden, and then move into Poland and Russia, and that was the goal. Charles Martel stopped them in 732 on the Pyrenees, and some years after that, It took about 700 years, but eventually um, Muslim power in the Iberian Peninsula vanished. By about 1500, they were all gone. But for six, seven, eight hundred years, they really dominated that area, although Charles Martel stopped them from going further. Now, one of the mysteries that a secular history department has trouble with is who were these people? who swept across North Africa and then jumped, like some were Berbers, some, some were, uh, uh, were uh, Africans, some were uh, native people from other parts of that area, and yet it's hard to understand what made all these people work together to conquer Spain and Portugal. No, it isn't. What made them all work together was something called a religion, called Islam. 
They were working for the glory of Allah and the Prophet. But the secular mind looks at these strange people and said, how did they all agree to conquer Spain? What brought them? How were they allies? Well, that's easy. What's hard to... Oh, wait. In order to understand it, you have to understand the role of God, spirituality, and religion. So that was as far as they got from the West. However, uh, Islam was absolutely determined to conquer um, Christianity. Christianity was based in Europe. All right? At this point, there's no Christianity in Africa, there's no Christianity in Asia, there's no Christianity anywhere except in Europe. And as a matter of fact, there are some places, like Sweden, for instance, didn't become Christian until about 1000 AD. So for, in some parts of Europe, it's fairly new. In other parts, obviously, Italy and Rome and so on, people are, are Christian for uh, centuries already. So the, the Muslim world and you'll see why this has to do with your income and your revenue in a few minutes, the Muslim world, having failed to get through Europe from the West because of Charles Martel at the Pyrenees, decided to come from the East. And they decided to launch an attack, and they went through Hungary, and they went through Serbia, and they went through a large part of Eastern Europe, including uh, Turkey was, was conquered by the Muslims, and eventually they came to Austria. And the most important city in that region at the time was Vienna. And so in the summer of 1683, July 7th, I think it was, they set up a siege of Vienna. And uh, we're talking about people who were incredibly brutal. Um, they had um, acted against their own interests again, right, from a materialistic political point of view, this is inexplicable. Your big goal is in, was Vienna. So uh, about 100 miles south of Vienna, there's another city they come to first. Now, when you're Muslims and you've got a huge army and you're trying to take Vienna, then you want them to surrender because that is the least costly way of taking the city. And then you've pretty much got the rest of Austria open to you. You move on from there to Germany, but you're in very good shape. So what they do is, uh, a few months earlier, they besiege an, a city south of Vienna, and they tell those guys, hey, we're going to starve you out, and then we're going to kill you. But if you surrender and open the city to us, we'll let you live. We just want to be able to have control of the area. So the a uh, city voted and they decided to um, welcome in the Muslims. And as soon as they got in, they slaughtered every man, woman, and child. Guess what that did when the news reached Vienna? It told the Vienna people, don't even dream of surrendering. You're going to have to hold out. And so, sure enough, they did. They tore down all the houses and trees uh, for about three miles outside the city walls of Vienna in order to give the defenders a clear shot, in order to force the Muslims to cross over open land so as that they could be shot at with bows and arrows from the city walls. And, uh, and so the Islamic army decided to tunnel. And their plan was to tunnel all the way under and again, with huge numbers of people that they're willing to sacrifice, you can tunnel big distances. The idea was to tunnel under the city walls, detonate gunpowder, there's no dynamite yet, 
and that way they're going to open up the way to the city. Well, the Viennese drove huge tree trunks all the way into the ground outside the city wall to stop tunnels getting that far. And this is the kind of battle that's going on. Meanwhile, they're running out of ammunition, they're running out of food. People in Vienna are in really, really, really bad shape. And everybody knows that if Vienna falls to the Muslims that summer of 1683, the rest of Europe is open, and the dream of a Christianity-free world was in reach. Because you've heard of the Barbary pirates that uh, Thomas Jefferson sent Admiral Stephen Decatur to deal with in North Africa. One of the reasons that America had to deal with these people is that they were completely barbaric and ruthless. There was no negotiating. They killed Christians. That's what they did. And so Vienna falling was going to be something of a calamity. And so what then happened is, and... Uh, I'm not going to take any time on the, how this came about. But all of a sudden, under a great Christian leader called John Sobieski, who was king of Poland, what he did is he gathered a, um, uh, an army of Poles, and then he asked the Habsburg Empire to join, and then he asked the Holy Roman Empire to join, and then he asked the Pope to join in. Never before in the history of the world to that date, till 1683, had all these enemies joined forces. Never happened before. And secular historians in American universities to this day are baffled. They literally cannot explain what made the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire and the Poles and the Pope, what made them all cooperate and become allies? And the answer is, to save Christianity. But to the secular mind, there is no such thing of relevant Christianity. Who cares? So they don't understand the events of 1683. And in what is the biggest cavalry charge in the history of humanity, um, over 30,000 horses came down. The Muslims are gathered in the plains surrounding the city of Vienna. The main bulk of the Muslim army is there. And down comes John Sobieski with his combined army. They struck at about sunrise. And by 6 p.m. on September the 11th, 1683, the Muslims were vanquished completely. And they retreated back to Turkey the Ottoman Empire, such as it was, was a shadow of its former self. And that is where they were until the 11th of September, 2001. They have long, long memories. And again, to secular America, there was no reason that the 11th of September, 2001, should have been different from any other day but to people deeply steeped in Islamic history and Islamic theology, that was obviously the day to strike the West. Today, Vienna is no longer the home of Christianity. America is. And so the same titanic struggle continues. The only way to understand what's really going on in the world today is to see that it is a struggle between the culture of the Koran and the twin peoples of the Bible, Jews and Christians.
Peace is ridiculous. How can you possibly have peace when the issue is belief, when your God tells you something? And that is what we're dealing with. Now, I explain all of that in order to explain something else. That is not all we're dealing with. What happens is an interesting thing. In the year 1000, right, roughly 1,000 years ago, the population of the world is about 250 million. Right now, we're about 7,000 million. So it went from 250, leave out the word million, let's just leave numbers we can deal with. It went from 250 to 7,000 in the last 1,000 years. Now, it's interesting, if I were to draw a graph here, you know, here is the year 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, 13, 15, 17, 18, 1,900, 2,000, we're here. And back there, the population is 250 million of the whole world. Now, it's 7,000 million. How do you suppose that population went? Do you suppose it sort of was a nice steady climb all the way up from 1,000 years ago till now? It's nothing like that. If you actually look at the graph, this is what it looks like. It's virtually not moving. It's going from uh, 250 to 300 to 400, but it's nowhere near 7,000 until we get to about the middle of the 18th century, about 1750, all of a sudden, whoa, it's like a huge spike. And we're at 7,000 million people, around about 1750. But what happened? And not only that, we got another problem, which is that in about 1,000, the technological development of China, most of Asia, parts of Africa, and all of Western Europe were about the same. People were really not living that well or that long. What happens from about that middle period, about halfway between 1,000 and 2,000, somewhere around about 1,500, whoa, all of a sudden, the West starts accelerating way beyond the rest of the world to such an extent that to this very day, the whole world is trying to copy the West. Are you okay? Is this making sense to you? Because I want you to really understand what causes this. This is nothing like you were taught falsely in school and university. This remains a big mystery, by the way, in secular education. But to you here today, you'll see it's no mystery at all. So we're asking, what changed? Why was there a population jump in 1750? But even before that, why was there a technological jump in the West, in Europe? The rest of the world didn't get it. So much so that up till 1700, if you looked at a bank in Bangkok or Bombay or Beijing, a bank was a guy who kept gold stuffed in his mattress. 
If you looked at a bathroom in Bangkok or Beijing or Bombay, a bathroom was a hole in the ground. And if you were really upper class, you'll pardon me, there was a nice little place to put your feet. But that's what it was. Why is it that today, if you look at banks or bathrooms in Bangkok and Bombay and, uh, and uh, Beijing, they've changed. They now look exactly the way banks and bathrooms look in Boston and Birmingham and Berlin. How come Boston and Birmingham and Berlin didn't say, hey, you know what? Holes in the ground's a really good way to go. No. They went the way of the West because it worked better. Now, a lot of this stuff doesn't get covered or spoken about at secular universities and schools. One of the reasons is that since they're secular and since there's no God and there's no Bible, the only explanation they have for these uncomfortable realities is color. Oh, I guess people who are not white-skinned can't do these things. That's what they say. Because they don't know the real truth. The real truth is, obviously, for anyone with intelligence in his head, it's got nothing to do with skin color. It has to do with your spiritual outlook, as I'm going to explain and show you. So what happens? Well, it's very simple. Around about the middle of this period, from 1,000 all the way to 2,000, roughly in the middle of this 2,000-year period, we have a few things happening at once. One thing we have is that a guy called Wycliffe translates the Bible, which up till then was available in only Hebrew or Latin or Greek. And the problem is that very few people could speak or read Hebrew or Latin or Greek. So the vast majority of people knew absolutely nothing about the Bible. Now, the Catholic Church did teach. It taught a certain perspective, and obviously, effectively. But the majority of Christians had no idea themselves what's written in this book. Along comes Wycliffe and translates it in about 15, early 1500s, I want to say. Um, a hundred years later, 1611, comes the King James translation of the Bible. So in that hundred years, it gets to be very interesting. We go from total biblical illiteracy, other than within the church, but among the rest of us, biblical illiteracy. Wycliffe translates it into English, and then an amazing thing happens. In 1450, we get something called the printing press. Now, Johann Gutenberg comes up with a printing press, which was, for its day, a bigger breakthrough than the internet was in 2000. It was a mind-boggling breakthrough. And all of a sudden, everybody can now get a copy of the Bible in English. But there was still another important thing that happened, and that is in 1500 came the Protestant Reformation. And whilst I'm not a theologian and I, I don't know a whole lot about these things, what I do know is that one of the big differences between Protestantism and Catholicism was Protestantism not only allowed but encouraged people to study the Bible. Huge difference. Huge difference. So much so, 
how about I'll give you one more mystery that baffles the economics departments of today's universities. I'm not exaggerating, by the way. This is absolutely true. One more baffling thing. How about I tell you about two countries, Belgium and Holland. They are right next to each other. They have the same weather. Neither of them have any natural resources. They've got the same kind of people with roughly the same language and roughly the same history. Belgium is an economic basket case. That's why they've become the bureaucrats of the European Union. It's, it's true. There's nothing else they can do. Holland is an economic powerhouse. If you've heard of the Shell Oil Company, that's Dutch. Uh, if you use an electrical appliance with the name Philips on it, that's Dutch, and that's just to mention too. Holland is a powerhouse. Belgium is a basket case. All right, you don't, know, you don't know Belgium and Holland. How about Ireland? There's a place called Northern Ireland, and there's a place called Southern Ireland, and they've always, they've been at odds with one another for a long time. Northern Ireland, economic powerhouse. <clears throat> the Titanic was built in Northern Ireland, in Belfast. You shouldn't hold that against them. It was the iceberg, not, not the bakers. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and uh, South Island is, and it's a very pretty place, and nothing against the Irish, God bless them, but South Island is basically Irish guys sitting in pubs drinking Guinness. There's nothing happening in South Island. All the economic developments in the North. Take Italy, right? And who doesn't love Italy? The north of Italy is where they build things called Lamborghinis. They build Ferraris. And if your pocket doesn't stretch quite that far, which it ought to by now, um, <laughs> it's also where they build Fiat's. And for those of you whose interests lie elsewhere, the entire Italian fashion industry, women's garments and shoes, all made in Milan. Italian shipbuilding, all in the north of Italy, La Spezia. What goes on in the south of Italy? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Actually, nothing. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you want to spend a vacation on Sicily. It's nice. But there's nothing happening. Now, ladies and gentlemen, all the stuff is highly politically incorrect, as if I haven't gone there before. And, <clears throat> and so we have to now ask ourselves, what's the difference between Belgium and Holland? What's the difference between North Island and South Island? What's the difference between North Italy and South Italy? The difference is very simple. Belgium is Catholic, Holland is Protestant. North Island is Protestant, South Island is Catholic. That's why they've had the troubles there for more than 100 years. Um, Italy. North Italy, much closer to Germany, is, tends towards the Protestant. South Italy, strongly Catholic. And so if you've ever doubted that how we relate to God and how we understand what our boss expects of us, if you're not comfortable with the idea that that shapes our lives economically, then you have no way of understanding all these facts about the world. It's hugely different. And the Bible is very central to all of that. One is at an enormous advantage using biblical principles. And so 
if you've now got a bit of an idea of why Holland beats Belgium economically, and why North Ireland beats South, why North Italy beats South Italy, then you'll also understand why it is that Jews have always been disproportionately good with money. This isn't because they have a money gene that they pass down in their sperm. That's not how that works. <laughs> You'd have to be a really ignorant racial kind of person to think that that's how it worked. But there are people like that, obviously. It's simply because there's something called ancient Jewish wisdom, which is the accumulation of vast numbers of tips and tools and techniques, spiritual strategies and principles and timeless truths that when wrapped all together, help you relate to people, help you understand how the world really works and makes you successful with money. And my entire ministry, all that I do, is work on this interface between faith and finance helping people identify the principles that really do bring success. Um, here is one of them that um, is, is something which plays an enormously important role, and um, it is something that is natural in the Jewish business world, but it's something that everybody should practice and everybody should get the hang of. And that is developing eloquence. Because you think about it for a moment, what is the most important part of your body for making money? Um, I guess I should rule out if you are a swimsuit model. <laughs> Which uh, is kind of ironic because I remember applying for a job a few years ago as a swimsuit model. What's funny? What? I got turned down, which really just showed me that anti-Semitism is still alive and well. <clears throat> but, you know, that's mean and nasty of you. But if you're not a swimsuit model, what's the most important part of your body for making money? Brain, obviously, but mouth. Mouth. Because, ladies and gentlemen, money can never be made unless two human beings talk to one another. There is no other way of making money. Don't even dream that it's possible to set up a computer to make money with another computer. You can set up certain automatic trades and so on, but that's not making money and it doesn't last for very long. But if you want a durable way of making money, it cannot happen without one human being talking to another. That's how money is made. And as a result of that communication, they agree on a mutually profitable transaction. How would it be if I mow your lawn for you this afternoon for $20? Well, yeah, if I did it myself, it would take me the whole afternoon. In that time, I can write somebody a business plan, charge them $400, of which I only have to give you 20. Yes, you're hired, go for it. And at the end of that afternoon, I'm happy because I've made $20 mowing your lawn. You're happy because you've saved your time and spent it on doing something more profitable. Wonderful, two human beings speak. But how do you develop your fluency? How do you get better at articulating things? Because every single 
act of making money requires one human being to talk to another. And think about it, you know. You are all in the wonderful profession of sales. I love the selling profession. But that's, I think you're pretty much all that. I mean, unless you are a, anyone here who's a justice on the United States Supreme Court, um, essentially, if you cannot be fired, if, you, um, if your actions bear no relationship to your income, then you are not a sales professional. I don't know what you are, but you're not a sales professional. But for all the rest of us, no matter what we do, we are all in the business of selling. Selling means I open my mouth and I tell you how I can improve your life. That's what it is. If it's not by mowing your lawn, it's by doing something else. But the trouble is very few of us have that ability. And what's more, when it involves making money, we're even more tongue-tied because deep in our hearts, we don't think it's making money. We think it's taking money. It's like the, the babysitter, right? And you, you go out with your spouse for a wonderful evening and you come home and you say to the babysitter, how much do we owe you? And you know what she sometimes does? Sort of looks down and she starts moving her foot on the carpet. You know, well, I don't know, would, would $20 be okay? That's how they sometimes speak. Why? Because she feels bad about taking your money. What's the right answer? No, $20 would not be okay. How about $30? Would that work for you? She says, well, that's more than I... Oh, yeah, that's right, because I want you... Next time we need a babysitter, we want you to jump. I'm not trying to get the cheapest deal here. I need modifications. I need a new bathroom added to my house. I ask five contractors. I don't go with the lowest quote. Why would I do that? Any smart contractor can find a dozen ways to cut money on the job. I'll never know. I'm the homeowner. No, I don't, I don't go for the lowest. Of course not. We make money. We don't take money. And people who don't understand that are impacted in their speaking ability. But even worse than that, many of us do not learn ever to speak effectively or fluently. Here's one of the biggest culprits. One of the biggest culprits is watching video screens. I can't emphasize this enough. Every hour in your week that you watch stupid cat videos on YouTube, you think I'm gonna now say to you is a waste of time. That's bad enough. But you don't need me to tell you that, you know that yourself. It's much worse than a waste of time. It is damaging your cognitive abilities. It is harming your ability to speak. You are less articulate from watching a screen than you are from reading a book. By the way, listening to an audible book, that works fine as well. Listening, because when your mind translates the symbols on the page or the sounds that you hear into concepts, that process is making you better equipped to communicate with other people. Now, we don't even have to delve into the history of the world economy 
to know that communication produces wealth. You know that. The more people you communicate with in your business, the more money you're going to make. Because all that means is, there is a, there's a larger pool of people who know you, who can come to like you, and can come to trust you. Well, when they know you, like you, and trust you, there's a pretty good chance they'll let you serve them. And when you serve them, the result is revenue flow. And it's one of the reasons that there was a Russian economist called Nikolai Kondratiev. Stalin killed him. You know why? Stalin is a materialist. Nikolai Kondratiev was an economist who, uh, up until the time Stalin killed him in, in the 30s or 40s, uh, he was an economist who understood the spiritual reality. And he said, he said, there is a 50-year cycle in the affairs of human beings that God built into the world. It's actually written on the Liberty Bell on display in Philadelphia. It's called the Jubilee. Jubilee is just a Hebrew word which means 50 years. And Nikolai Kondratiev said there's a 50-year cycle. And if you look and see, he says, you'll see. Now, we are able to watch it a little bit more than he was. But if we go back and we notice, where were the peaks of wealth creation in the last few hundred years of, of history? Well, uh, one huge peak of wealth creation was steamships. Steamships. All of a sudden, the journey across the Atlantic between Europe and America could be made predictable and reliable. And it changed. There's this massive explosion of wealth creation because people could connect and communicate better. 1800, 1850, 50 years later, two things happen. The railroads across the world, and the telegraph. Now, again, ladies and gentlemen, remember that until the 24th of May, 1844, there was no way to communicate faster than a man on a horse. And so, here we are in the cornfields of America. Obviously, there is a food broker in Philadelphia who would love to know what the market is looking like in Illinois, how does he get information from Chicago to Philadelphia? They send a guy on a horse. And a lot of different brokers send a lot of different guys on the horse, and they come back and they say, we spoke to a lot of farmers, we spoke to a lot of traders in Illinois, and they told us this and this and this is what this year's um, harvest looks like, and people would then set the price and make deals. Along comes Samuel Morse. And on the 24th of May, 1844, sends a message down a copper wire 38 miles from the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. to a railway station in Baltimore, Maryland. And the words he chose, Numbers, the book of Numbers 23. And those same folks who think Leviticus is an aftershave lotion probably don't know that Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. But in Numbers 23, there's a phrase which says, what hath God wrought? And that was the message Samuel Morse, a religious Bible-believing Christian, chose to send down the very first electronic transmission in the history of the world. All of a sudden, information flowed quicker. Again, a bigger deal than the internet is in our lives. It was huge. 
But there it was, 1800, 1850, 1900. 1900 is the telephone and the beginning of radio. 1950, television. 2000, internet. 2050, haven't a clue. <laughs> but I can tell you it's gonna be big. All of these things are communication, do you see? All of these things have to do with connecting human beings with one another. But that's exactly what our boss expects and wants. A, um, a young woman I know, she's the mother of five little children, and she told me recently, she said, I've made sure that no matter what difficulties I've had to face, my children have never seen me cry. And I said, why, why is it so important? She said, because I wanted to be able to use it for one thing. And I said, what's that? She said, I've said to my kids repeatedly, you're all little now, and if you want to fight and squabble with each other, that's fine. But if you do that when you grow up, I will cry. And she says, every time I said, their jaws drop, their eyes bug out of there. Parents like their kids to get on with each other, don't they? The worst thing is when your kids squabble, you probably wouldn't know anything about that. But in our family... You know, our kids squabbled and, until a certain magical moment when I suddenly realized not only aren't they squabbling anymore, but somehow or another they're actually loving each other and trying to help each other. And I thought, my goodness, with a lot of God's help, maybe that lady who buys cheap gas and me man managed to pull something off here. Our Father in heaven is just like us. When he sees us connecting with each other and trying to serve one another, why would it surprise us that he blesses us with the incredible blessing of financial abundance? That makes perfect sense. But we have to be able to communicate because that is at the core of wealth creation. And so in the same way the internet connected us, and the same way that television connected us, and then radio and the telephone connected us, and railways and the telegraph, and steamships. Every time there was a breakthrough in connectivity, there's this huge burst of wealth creation. In exactly the same way, to the extent that you could walk out of this conference and go home being able to communicate more effectively than you have up till now, you would not be shocked to discover that the next six months would yield a tangible premium in terms of revenue generation. So how would you go about that? Well, it's, it's very simple, but it's very hard. Meaning, it's easy for me to tell you what to do, it's easy for you to understand what to do. It's a lot harder to actually do it. My experience is that typically about a third of the people in my audiences actually do this because there are many places I come back to year after year. I do programs for churches around the country. And so very often people come up to me, well, my best estimate is about a third of the people. My guess is that in this audience, people who are all friends with Jim Cochran, I have a feeling the number's much higher than that. I don't know. But you do this and I'm not worried that if you have me back next year, I'm not worried that a single one of you, oh, I did what you said, didn't do anything for, it's not gonna happen. You're gonna come shake my hand and thank me for what I'm about to tell you. It's very simple. Cut down your screen time. I'm not talking about work, 
you know, if you're sending emails or whatever you're doing, but cut down screen time from entertainment standpoint. Cut down that time and use that time to read something good. But here's the trick. Not just read, but read aloud. My friends, when your ears hear your mouth form the words, there is a cognitive process that takes place in your brain and probably in your soul that makes you a far more effective communicator. I'm going to say it again. Three times a week, a minimum of 20 to 30 minutes a time, total an hour and a half a week, read aloud. It should be a book that demands a little bit of you. It should be something that, you know, not, I wouldn't go with fiction. I would go with nonfiction. Fiction's better than nothing. I mean, if that's where your reading's at, then do that. But if you re, pick a book that is written in good English. Bible's not a bad one, by the way. And read it aloud. You cannot imagine the impact this has on your communicative ability. And don't be shocked to see the result. And now we come full circle back to note-taking. I'm happy you didn't take notes because it's been much more pleasant for me to actually see you. And I'm hoping it's been more useful for you to absorb some of these principles into your heart. But essentially, everything I've been telling you has been to help you relate to this idea that just like Jews use these Bible principles and just the way they reshaped the West, why did the Industrial Revolution happen where it happened? Why didn't the Industrial Revolution happen in China? After all, you keep hearing people, oh, China was very advanced. It isn't true. It is true that they came up with gunpowder, but they used it to paint pretty pictures in the nighttime sky. The idea that gunpowder can be used to force a piston down a cylinder was completely unknown outside the West. The place where the Bible took root. Nothing to do with geography, nothing to do with skin color, nothing to do with anything at all except the place where the Bible took root. And these biblical principles are powerful in terms of shaping not only cultures and countries and societies, they're powerful in shaping what happens to your financial figures over the next six to 12 months. Improving your ability to articulate is right up there at the top of the list. Secondly, writing. Yeah, not notes, that's true. Writing. If you possibly can, with a pen or pencil in a notebook, if for one reason or another you just aren't gonna do that and it has to be with a keyboard into your uh, Evernote or whatever, wherever you keep your stuff, um, then that's better than nothing. Once again, the process, this is now the reverse. We were converting symbols on a page to concepts when you read a book. Now we're taking your concepts and we're putting them on paper. What sort of concepts? <clears throat> well, I would like to recommend that you start today, if you're not already doing it, you start writing a journal every night. It doesn't have to be long, but it is a personal, introspective look at your day. 
it's an honest analysis of the things you accomplished, but it's also an analysis of the mistakes you made. It's an open, it's basically where you confess to yourself, hey, I wasted three hours today. I can't believe I did that. You write that down. Now, here's the important thing, and, and with this, we've got to start coming in for a landing. Have you noticed that so many great figures of history fortunately happen to have journals and diaries that historians were able to draw on, right? It, it's the most amazing thing. You, you think of big names in history, whether it's in the world of science or politics or military, big, big on the military, great military leaders, they always seem to leave diaries when they moved on to the embrace of their father in heaven. They leave diaries. Isn't that wonderful? What a coincidence. How come, how come the, uh, the bus driver in Kansas City didn't leave a, a diary when he left, when he departed? The answer is, it's not a coincidence at all. It's that writing a diary makes you great. Had the bus driver in Kansas City kept a journal, he probably wouldn't have died as a bus driver in Kansas City. Putting ideas down on paper with your own hands, where you are evaluating your life, taking your life seriously enough to spend time writing it down, changes everything that happens to you. And this is one of the reasons, like the Bible, the Hebrew Bible is 3,000 years old, right? Do you know one of the verbs that shows up more often than any other verb in the Bible? The verb write. It's at a time when the majority of the world was illiterate. And yet the Bible goes on and on and on. You shall write these words down. Hey, king of Israel, when you ascend the throne, the first thing you have to do is write yourself a Torah. Well, really, you don't think I've got more important things to do? Nope, you don't. Writing is critical. It shapes who we are. So please, read aloud. Write a journal in the evening. It doesn't have to take long. It, it can be done more quickly. You know how much time you waste on, on, on you know, silly videos? Uh, much less time than that. And you write. By the way, you'll come to enjoy it. And you don't have to be thinking to yourself, oh, you know, my kids are going to read this after I've gone. You can, you can leave instructions for it to be destroyed if that makes you feel better. It doesn't matter. Because this is for you now. It's not for posterity. It's to change your life now. And that's what you write in the nighttime. Here's what you write in the morning. In the morning, you take one of these cards, and this is what I keep them for because I don't tell you to do anything I don't do myself, and that is every morning you write down three things you are grateful for. You don't just write down apple, pretty sunrise, and uh, my dog. You actually have to write down the words, I am grateful that I have in my life this. I am grateful that this happened to me yesterday. I'm grateful for the feeling I have now. Why is this so important? Because one of the most important and most powerful tools that have served the people of Israel really, really well is optimism. But how do you generate optimism? It's all very well. Oh, I feel great. I'm ready to go. That lasts about 20 seconds. But how do you generate lasting optimism? Again, a great biblical secret, and that is through expressing gratitude. If you find an opportunity during the course of your day, you know, the late Zig Ziglar was a dear friend. We, we traveled together quite often. And um, 
he taught me something. I was always very grateful to him for this. He never got off a plane without stopping for a second by the cabin attendant near the door and saying, you were really terrific today. You made my trip really. I really appreciated your smile. And you just watch them beam. Nobody ever does that. People sort of mumble, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But that doesn't mean anything. He stopped moving his feet for 10 seconds, never mind the people behind him. He said, I just want to thank you. I really appreciated how you took care of us today. So from then till now, I do not get off a plane without doing that, because I learned that from the late great Zig Ziglar. Uh, expressing appreciation and gratitude lifts your feelings. It makes you optimistic. We haven't got time today to go into why that is. Maybe a little later this afternoon we can talk about that if it interests you. But uh, bottom line is you have to know. Stop looking at moving pictures. They harm you. Never mind the time waste. They harm you. Make sure you read aloud for a cumulative hour and a half a week. Make sure you write a journal every evening. And make sure you write down three things that start off, three sentences that begin with the words, I am grateful or I appreciate. And you just write it down at the end of, like tomorrow I throw out the card I filled in this morning, I throw that card out. And I started, because again, it's not for posterity. This changes my day. I become a more optimistic person. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I wish that we could go a whole lot further, but we can't. I've got to wrap it at this point. As a matter of fact, I am apologizing. I'm five minutes late. Uh, I will just say this, that um, on my website, which is youneedarabbi.com, Well, the way I see it is everybody needs a rabbi. And my humble submission is that I'm yours, you see. Uh, so you need a rabbi.com. And um, we, uh, we have something called the income abundance set. We also have something called the financial prosperity package. I'm going to leave you to look at this on your phones during lunch and you can take a look. If, there's, if you are interested in delving more deeply and in detail to master some of the topics we're talking about, you'll find them there. Just make sure you use the promo code PROVEN, like the name of the conference, um, and uh, there is a 20% reduction. That's just during the, the time the conference is running today and tomorrow. So uh, for those of you who are interested, please make use of that. Do not pay full price. And um, I look forward to seeing as many of you as possible during the rest of today as we have a chance to, to interact and I have a chance to shake hands and get to know a little bit about your lives. I, I deeply hope and pray that in some small way I've contributed to the kind of revenue figures you are going to show during the next six to 12 months. I think I have. God bless you all. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much yeah, indeed for giving you. me the chance to be that here. That was brilliant. Just a, that was brilliant. A beautiful so audience. Please stay. Please stay. Just me. Thank you, guys. So do you, those of you who listen to the podcast, do you see where his wisdom has leaked into what we've built around here. How many of you found yourself said, oh, I remember Jim mentioning that. I've heard that, right? This guy has had a big impact on the way we do things around here. Uh, you'll be proud of me, my friend, this morning. For the first time ever, I presented, and these guys can attest to the fact that 
thanks to the challenge that you gave me. I had no notes, as you've done today. Oh, very so. good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the challenge. I listen. Um, when we speak from notes, you know, when a speaker stands here and like pretends not to be reading, but because he sort of looks up while he keeps his place where he goes back to, that's the equivalent of people taking notes while you're talking to them. It's like having a conversation. You know, just imagine going on a date with somebody you really love, and while you're talking to her, hoping to persuade her to marry you, she's busy scribbling notes while you're talking. <laughs> And she says, well, I just don't want to, to forget some of the things you've said. That's not the point of this. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, um, and by the way, uh, I instinctively and always distrust politicians who use um, teleprompters. teleprompters. Yes. So you're not willing to let me see what's in your soul. You want to say the words written by your speechwriters after all the research mm -hmm. and opinion polls and you expect me to take you seriously? Ah, not happening. Beautiful. I, I could listen to this guy all day. <laughs> and you, I, I've put into practice something else that you've taught me, Rabbi Lappin, and that is, and uh, hopefully this passes your test, because you, you challenge us to read out loud. Well, I run. I listen quite frequently to your podcast within a day or two of it coming out once a week. And I'll find myself repeating and trying to mark the pace of presentation and speech out loud, loud enough where I can hear it myself. And I'm kind of repeating after you. I can consume content repeating what I'm hearing, I think, and you've encouraged us to listen to great speeches, for example. Yes. Uh, you know, that's a good way to practice your oration skills. Because guys, those of you who have been on this full journey know that I was incapable of doing what I'm doing right now as recently as seven years ago. The first event, you had the pleasure and honor of, for us, for, we had the pleasure and honor of having you at our second, I believe it was, five years ago, our second event, right? That right. was number two. The first one was a bit of a train wreck, in my opinion, for my presentation skills. It was the top of my head experience. <laughs> and I, I was sweating and stammering, but I've been using the techniques that you've taught I was as shy and backward as they come, and now I'm very comfortable and confident. I feel like I'm at a big family reunion, and I'm very comfortable in this room, and there could be 10 times as many people here, and I'd be perfectly, perfectly comfortable because I've listened to great, I've listened to your presentations, I've listened to great speeches, I've repeated them out loud, I've read out loud to myself. This stuff works, guys, and my bank account has indeed grown quite larger than it was at that point in time as well. So this stuff works, guys. It works. Well, I've got a couple things I did write down because I wanted to be sure to honor our, our guest today, the best podcast, Daniel Lappin. Pod, just, look on, just look on any podcast listening app for Daniel Lappin. Listen to it, consume it. You'll be so far ahead of the game. Uh, we're going on a cruise together, my friend, are, in yeah, March. Share, share some details, if you would, just a moment. I'm already locked in. Andrea and I are going with Daniel and his wife in March. Fill us in on some details. Um, well, um, this is Glenn Beck, who, who's been a, a longtime friend. And we've disagreed about all kinds of things, but, uh, but, but um, to, to his enormous credit, it's never impacted the friendship or the relationship. And he said to me, uh, what would be the most interesting cruise that might be able to attract your attention and the people that, that you spend time with? And I said, well, what I'm always fascinated in is how civilization began. Civilization sprang from the pages of the Bible. The world has about 5,000 different cultures, but only one civilization. 
And that civilization has made people vote with their feet. Most countries in the world do not have an illegal immigration problem. True. But countries that are Bible-based civilizations do. And so he said, how about if we do a cruise around the cradle of civilization, around the Mediterranean, where a biblical culture and Greek, and all of these things came together to produce what we think of as the civilization that has driven, driven technological innovation for all time, and, and that's exactly It's what nearly we're sold out, last time I checked. It's been promoted, if any of you listen to, because uh, <clears throat> who else, who are some of the other guests? Uh, there's... Um, David Barton, who I think Barton, is one of the wall builders, historians right. of America. Bill O'Reilly, yeah. uh, Bill, uh, Bill O'Reilly, correct, yeah. yeah. He's gonna be, <clears throat> so it's like a celebrity type endorsed thing. But we're going, if you guys wanna go, comesailaway.com, be sure when you call in, you have to get on the phone, mention Rabbi Lappin so you get the big, nice discount. It's like a four or $500 discount. It's in March, 2020, Andrew and I are going. So if you wanna come hang out, have conversations, I think a few people from our community are already going. So I wanna let you guys know about that. Come feel free to ask questions. Um, my friend, are you available to sign books and hang out absolutely. Know, during lunch and into the next? Absolutely. Because he has absolutely. another session after lunch. We're gonna release you guys, we're, we're a little late. I apologize for I'm that. I'm sorry, my fault. No, they, I'm taking up time that I didn't warn you about, so I'll take half the pro, I'll take half the blame. All right. Uh, so we'll continue the conversation right back in here with Rabbi Lappin after lunch, but we'll also have breakout sessions. I'll probably be in here hanging out as well because I have some questions. I want to take advantage of the time that I have with my friend, and then that is all I've got for you guys. I'm going to bring up Sue. She's going to tell us our lunch plans, tell you when to be back, and give us a few more details if there's any announcements we've forgotten, and we'll let you guys get out of here. That's why we had a nice long lunch today, too, because we knew this might happen, okay? Hey, God bless you guys. See you after lunch. Well, there it is, and uh, I sure hope that you enjoyed it and got something of value out of it. Uh, as you heard, I did a second presentation uh, later that same day, which I might share with you in another a podcast upcoming in the next few weeks. Uh, I'm going to listen to it again myself and just see if it. Uh, it I, I think it is filled with with as much value as I feel committed to deliver to you. So I probably will. But for now, that's as far as we're going here. The website rabbidaniellappin.com. All right, you remember that. Please make sure you receive the emails, uh, thought tools. Uh, Susan's Musings, Ask the Rabbi. Go to the website. You'll also be able to read back issues of those. Uh, many, many, many people at this uh, conference in Champaign this past week uh, asked me questions. And uh, instead of spending a lot of time just talking to one person answering a question, I, I said to a number of people, go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and there's a section there. There's a page called Ask the Rabbi. The question you have just asked me has been asked and answered on that page. So go ahead, do a search there, and I guarantee you, you will find the answer. And if you don't mind, that's just a more effective way for me to do this rather than repeat myself uh, constantly, particularly when there are a lot of people who have different things they want to discuss with me. So I, I appreciate it very much if you do that. And people were perfectly happy to do that, and, and off they went. And so uh, that all worked great. The, um, the product we'd like you to take a good look at this week is called Business, uh, excuse me, uh, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And uh, what Susan and I do is we uh, study uh, certain words and reveal how these words unpack in the Lord's language to 
uh, uncover hidden meanings inside. Uh, things, you know, words like shalom, the Hebrew words for table, Hebrew words for family connections and relationships. And we, uh, by means of, of lessons and anecdotes, we show how the Lord's language is different from every other language on the planet. So that's a buried treasure. That's a book. It's also available in Kindle and Amazon. You can get it everywhere. It's called Buried Treasure, and it's by uh, Susan and myself. And uh, also, we have the alphabet book, nominally for children, but their parents all tell us how much they love that. So uh, please do take a look at all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. And, um, okay, oh, and yes, the uh, the Ghanaian charity... <laughs> <laughs> light-hearted obviously but uh but it it sounds plausible doesn't it in in a way i mean just if anybody of if if any of you either live or have visited san francisco or los angeles or seattle recently um I and mean, you'll see that there's even fears of serious diseases that you only used to get in the slums of calcutta <laughs> well Calcutta's not like that anymore. Bombay's not like that anymore. Uh, Nigeria's not like that. Ghana is certainly not like that. Uh, so it, it sort of sounds very plausible, I felt, to uh, have a beautiful Ghanaian charity doing its utmost to try and help the suffering people of California. Folks, that is as far as we're going in today's show. I thank you very much indeed for being part of the show. And again, when I travel, I, I so love it when people come up and, you know, we sometimes meet, met somebody at a car rental place the other day, uh, airports, all, um, and obviously at the conference, when people come up and say, hi, I listen to your show, uh, I get a real kick. I enjoy that. I feel that we have community. I feel we are connected with one another. So uh, do stay in touch. And again, you can always write to me at our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, the Contact Us tab will do the trick, and I'll be able to hear from you. That's as far as we go this week. So I, your rabbi, wish you a week of good times with your family, with your friends, with your finances and your faith. Those are the keys to happiness. God bless. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin.